If you would, turn in your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's been a long time since we were here. I look back, I think it was March of 2022, so almost two years ago that we were last here. So we need to do a little bit of review. And so in light of that, I do want to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, but we're going to focus our attention this evening mostly on verses 8 through 12. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, if you would follow along with me. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our entrance to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much struggle. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with a flattering word, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor seeking glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we could have been a burden to you. But we prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. In this way, having fond affection for you, we were pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you would become beloved to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly and righteously and blamelessly we behave toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and bearing witness to each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Amen. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we give thanks to you for this portion of your word. We thank you for the Apostle Paul, for his, his heart for the people to whom he ministered. And we ask now, Lord, as we examine this passage together, that you would, by your spirit, be teaching us, that you would help me to be clear, and that it would all be to your praise and your glory. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, You may not remember, it has been so long since we were here, but when we were last in this passage, we were looking at the the character of Paul as he faithfully served in a pastoral role to the body of believers at the church in Thessalonica. And we saw Paul defend his character either because he was under attack or, or because he anticipated that an attack may come. And so three times in the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians, Paul denies charges that were brought against him, and he presented his defense. In verses 1 through 2, Paul reminds the Thessalonians that his coming to them had not been in vain. He said to them, look at what the Lord has done. Just look at all that he's done in in your midst. We learned that in chapter 1 as we examined the, the work of faith, the labor of love, the steadfastness of hope, the joy of the Spirit, and the witness throughout the region that the Thessalonian church had. Paul's preaching certainly had not been in vain. 
In fact, it had borne much fruit in the lives of the Thessalonians. Paul asserts that he had been bold to declare the gospel of God amid much conflict. He says to them, do you remember how I had been shamefully treated in Philippi? You remember what happened. He had been falsely accused. He had been denied due process. He had been illegally punished even though he was a Roman citizen. He had been beaten in a town square. He had been thrown into prison. And regardless of, of all of these abuses, he pressed on from the city of Philippi, went on to Thessalonica, and he boldly shared the gospel with the people there. In verses 3 and 4, Paul denies the charge that his preaching ministry had sprung from any sort of error or impurity or an attempt to deceive. And as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul spoke the truth as it was revealed to him by our Lord. He had no impure motives. He was not trying to lead them astray. He was not simply a a man-pleaser. And he was not self-appointed, but he was commissioned by none other than Christ himself. In verses 5 through 7, Paul denies the charge that he was greedy or or simply seeking glory from man. He he wasn't a, a salesman just trying to say what their itching ears wanted to hear. He wasn't just a peddler. He wasn't just in it for the money. But rather, he was gentle among them, just like a mother with her own children. Paul reflects on the sacrifices that parents make for their children and compares it to his own ministry in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where he says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. So having concluded his defense against the charges that were brought against him in verse 7, Paul then transitions in verse 8 to describe how his ministry was worked out amongst the people of the Thessalonians based on his heart for them. And so five points this evening. I tried to come up with some clever alliteration, and it's not going to work out perfectly, but uh, if, you, if you're taking notes, you want to jot down five points. We're going to examine these five verses, 8 through 12. We're going to look at Paul's compassion. It's really not the best word. It's really his affection, but I was trying to come up with a C word so we can say his compassion. We're looking, going to look at his labor, and I couldn't come up with a C word for labor, so we're just going to call it his labor. We're going to look at his conduct, his care, and his charge. So first of all, in verse 8, we're going to look at Paul's compassion, or a really better word would be his affection. Paul launches off of the thought in his last offense in verse 7 to describe how his ministry of the gospel was governed by his love for the people, and he compares the gentleness that he showed towards the Thessalonians to that of a nursing mother and how she cares for her children. And then he goes on in verse 8 and he says, in this way or, or so, he describes his love for them by, by saying that he had fond affection for them, just like or in the same way that a mother does with her children. And I like the way that the ESV translates this word. It, it says that he was affectionately desirous of them. And then Paul goes on at the end of verse 8 to, to say that you would become beloved to us. Or again, the ESV says you were very dear to us. And that endearing affection prompted Paul and his companions to do two things. To first of all, to impart the gospel of God to them. And then secondly, to share their own lives with them. And so two questions come to mind. First of all, what is this gospel, this gospel of God that Paul imparted to them? 
he mentions it three times in chapter 2. Verse 2, he says, we had boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much struggle. He mentions it here in verse 8, where he says, we were pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. And he mentions it again in verse 9, where he says, night and day, we worked amongst you so as to not be a burden to you as we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So what is this gospel of God that Paul's referring to? Well, if you remember way back when we first began to study this book of 1 Thessalonians, we, we examined Acts chapter 17 just to get a, a bit of a, a glimpse of um, what it looked like when Paul first came into the city of Thessalonica to minister to the people there. And in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 3, we read this. It says, Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and setting before them that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is that Christ. Paul also gives a concise explanation of the gospel to the church in Corinth that is recorded for us in his first epistle to the Corinthian church in chapter 15. And there we read, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I proclaimed as good news to you, which you also received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I proclaim to you as good news, unless you believe for nothing. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. There are two truths that Paul conveyed when he presented the gospel to both the Thessalonians and to the Corinthians. First of all, that Christ had to suffer and die. And secondly, that he had to rise from the dead. Why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die for our sins? Well, we know we have all sinned. We learned that in Romans, right? Gabe referenced it this morning, that the book of Romans is perhaps the, the most clear and concise presentation of the gospel in all the New Testament. And Romans 3.23 tells us that we all have sinned. And Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Because we have sinned, we all deserve to die. We all have a sin debt that must be paid. Our God is holy, and he requires that our sin is accounted for. And Jesus, as the perfect God-man, went to the cross and bore the full, unmitigated wrath of God due us in himself. That's why he had to die. He died in our place, taking the punishment for our sin that we deserve to pay. But why the resurrection? What's the significance of the resurrection? Why is that a key focal point in the gospel that, that Paul presented. And Paul explains later in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, he says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is in vain. And in verse 17, he says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. 
And the clincher is really in verse 54 where he says, death is swallowed up in victory. You see, Jesus' resurrection is proof that his sacrifice was satisfactory to the Father and sufficient to atone for our sins. He successfully conquered sin and death. And as we've been learning in recent weeks in the book of Zechariah, Jesus is alive even now. He's fulfilling his high priestly role, and he's interceding for us before the Father. And because we know he's alive, we have that great hope that he's coming back. He's going to establish his kingdom. He's going to fulfill all of his promise for a glorious future for his people. So in a nutshell, that, that's the gospel that Paul preached in Corinth and in Thessalonica and wherever he went. That, that this Jesus was the Christ, that it was necessary for him to not only suffer and to take the penalty for our sins, but to rise again in order to become the victor over sin and death. So that's the first question. What is this gospel that, that, that Paul presented? But the second question that, that comes to mind as we read verse 8 is, how did Paul share his life with, with these people? It's apparent that Paul didn't just come and set up shop in a synagogue and deliver a zinger of a message and then retreat to his study to prepare his next sermon. It, it's obvious that he was invested in the lives of these people. It's seen in the way he describes his affection for, for them. He was fond of them. He longed to be with them. He was, as we said, affectionately desirous of them. They had become beloved or, or very dear to him. And he reminds them over and over again that, that they knew him. In verse 1, he says, you know, you know us. Verse 2, he says, you know, you know who we are. Says it again in verses 5 and verse 11, again and again and again. He says, you know, you know, you know us. This sort of mutual affection could only exist, not, not to be cliche, but it only could exist as they were doing life together, as they labored and toiled side by side with one another. And not to speculate, but I, I surmise that it's as they were going to birthday parties together and weddings and funerals and graduations, it was... It was as they lived out life together. Make no mistake, Paul's number one priority was ministering the truth of the gospel, making Christ known. But the glories of the gospel were fleshed out in everyday life for Paul and the Thessalonians as they together were partners in the gospel. And shouldn't that be true for us as well? So we've seen Paul's affection for the Thessalonians as he ministered the gospel to them. But next we see in in verse 9, his labor amongst them. Verse 9 says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. This theme of working hard seems to be a concern of Paul's throughout both of his epistles to the Thessalonians. So perhaps he was trying to instruct them in this area. I don't know. Maybe the Thessalonians were lazy. Maybe they just didn't like to work. But he says later on in chapter 4, verse 11, he says, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and to work with your hands as we commanded you. And then he says in chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, he, he urges them to honor those who labored amongst them and to regard them highly in love because of their work. And then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, 
We read this, it says, For we hear that some among you are walking in an unruly manner, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ, that working with quietness they eat their own bread. So subtly, Paul may have been saying here, don't be lazy, work hard, look at me, see how hard I've worked, follow my example. But based on the context of this passage and and how we've seen already Paul's emphasis on his heart for the people, I really don't think that's his main thrust here. He says, working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And he repeats this theme in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 8, where he says, With labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. So yes, Paul worked hard amongst the people to be an example to them. He does say in 2 Thessalonians 3, 7, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. But he worked hard amongst them mostly out of genuine concern for them. He earnestly did not want to be a burden to them. And as an apostle, he, he could have made demands. He could have expected them to provide for his needs as he ministered the gospel to them. But he was compelled by the urgency of the gospel and his authentic love for them. And so he lived and labored amongst them simply because he, he just didn't want to impose upon them. So we've seen Paul's affection for the Thessalonians in verses 7 and 8. We've seen how he worked hard amongst them so as to not be a burden to them in verse 9. Next in verse 10, we see his conduct amongst them as he ministered the gospel to them. Paul shifts gears in in verse 10 and he, he calls witnesses to the stand. See, under Old Testament law, at least two witnesses were called to testify in order to corroborate a defendant's statement. So Paul's calling upon not only the believers in the church in Thessalonica, but upon God himself. And he's saying, look how devoutly and righteously and blamelessly we've behaved toward you. He's asking them to examine his behavior toward them. And he comes at it from three different angles. First of all, in regard to devotion, he he makes the claim that he's devout. And it could not be denied that, that Paul was devoted. First of all, to the Lord but secondly, to the people to whom he administered. His devotion was sparked by an inward reality that his life had been transformed by the truth of the gospel. Secondly, in regard to righteousness, Paul walked uprightly before them. He was just in his dealings with them. He lived his life in conformity to God's word, and his outward behavior was inspired by the inward reality of a changed heart. And thirdly, he was blameless. He was, he was above reproach. Any charges against him would not stick. We see his inner devotion and his outer behavior displayed together here. So as Paul's calling witnesses to the stand, he's saying essentially, look, the evidence is clear. Both the Lord and you yourselves cannot deny the fact that we have conducted ourselves in an appropriate manner in every way before you. We are steadfast in our devotion. We are righteous in our behavior. We are blameless in our conduct. And the way we have conducted ourselves amongst you is a testimony to the power of the gospel to change lives. The gospel, we know the gospel that changed Paul's life, right? We know what kind of character he was before the gospel changed his life. It compelled him to live in such a way that he was above reproach. It wasn't manufactured, it was real. 
and it produced in him an earnest desire to please the Lord who had saved him and to love the people that had been entrusted to his pastoral care in an extraordinary way. So with that, we want to look next to his, his pastoral care, his care, his care for the people. We see that in verse 11. And having already illustrated his gentle care for believers as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her children in verse 7, Paul now describes his heart for the people as that of a father with his children. And what are some of the responsibilities that a father has with his children? Well, Paul spells it out for us here. He says, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and bearing witness to each one of you as a father would his own children. First of all, a father has a responsibility to exhort. This at times may include rebuke, correction, admonishment. It may be coming alongside of and motivating one toward love and good deeds. It carries the idea of instructing one to put aside worldly pursuits and to strive to please the Lord. Next, he encourages. To encourage, it's, it's to comfort or to soothe. And we see here the, the personal touch of a loving father. He's not harsh. <laughs> we talked about this a little bit yesterday morning. The men were here for the men's breakfast, and I joked with Gabe that I was afraid he was going to steal my thunder. But we, we know as, as men in particular, um, it's, uh, it's easy at times to be harsh in our communication, sometimes even when we don't really mean to be. Um, but that's, that's, uh, that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's, he's talking about being gentle um, to encourage in such a way that is, is um, um, loving and caring. Ephesians 6, 4, Paul exhorts fathers not to exasperate their children or to provoke them to anger, but rather to bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So that doesn't mean that a father avoids conflict, but he should always be ready to reprove and rebuke and correct in a loving and gentle way. And finally, in verse 11, it says that we were bearing witness to each one of you. Bearing witness. Both the, the ESV and the New King James translate this Greek word to be charged, that we charged you. But I like the way the, the NASB translated it. It says it implores. Uh, I, I think that fits the context and carries on the, the, theme, of heart, uh, the theme of Paul's heart for the people. As a loving father does with his children, Paul implores or he urges his spiritual children to do something. He's pleading with them. He's making a passionate appeal. And what is it that he's imploring them to do? Well, that brings us to our last point. He's, he's imploring them or he's charging them to consider how they should live. Verse 12 says, so that you should walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. What does that look like? How is it that believers are to walk worthy of the God who has called them? Paul doesn't really elaborate on that in this text. He, He shifts his thoughts again in verse 13 and he goes on to give thanks for how they received the word of God which he had preached to them. But based on the apparent close relationship that Paul had had with the Thessalonians, we can be sure that he had told them how they could walk worthy. Just as he had done in his epistles to the churches in Ephesus and in Philippi and Colossae. In Ephesians chapter 4, 
verses 1 to 3, we read this. It says, therefore, this is Paul writing to the Ephesians. Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Sounds similar to what he's saying in 1 Thessalonians, right? But he goes on to say, he tells them how. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And Paul says to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 29, he says, only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind contending for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And then Paul exhorts the Colossians in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. And he says, For this reason also since the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the full knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may what? Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and multiplying in the full knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So in light of these passages, how do we walk in a manner worthy of the God that has called us into his kingdom and glory? By being humble, gentle, patient, Bearing with one another, striving for unity, being of one spirit and one mind, contending for the gospel together, being willing to suffer for Christ's sake, gaining spiritual wisdom and understanding, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in our knowledge of God, attaining steadfastness, and joyfully giving thanks to God in all things. So because of the unique relationship that Paul had with the believers in Thessalonica, he was able to exert his loving influence upon them and urge them to live godly lives just as a loving father would with his own children. So what's the application for us? What's the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit want to teach us as we examine this portion of God's word? Well, we've seen the the compassion and the labor, the care and the conduct of the Apostle Paul amongst the Thessalonian believers. We've seen him charge them to live their lives in such a way that is worthy of the God who called them into his own kingdom. And certainly these are character qualities and habits that that we want to see in those that are are leading and ministering ministering to us, our pastors, our teachers, our elders, other church leaders. But is this message just for the leaders in our church? I don't think so. It's really a lesson in discipleship. Remember the Great Commission, Christ himself in Matthew, Matthew 28 told us to, to go into all the world and to make disciples. And a disciple is someone who follows someone else in the hopes of becoming what they are. Paul himself said in 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 1, be imitators of me, 
just as I also am of Christ. So if we're to be true disciples, if we are to imitate Paul and follow him the way that he followed Christ, what are the implications for us from this passage? Well, first of all, we need to get the gospel right, the gospel of God that that Paul mentions again and again and again, that same gospel that he preached to the Thessalonians. We learned it a little bit this morning, didn't we? We need to get the gospel right. We need to, first of all, have a proper understanding of the righteousness and the holiness of God and the judgment that is due us because of our sin. But it follows that a proper understanding of the gospel will also result in affection for the the people of God as we together revel in the fact that God is, he's not just saving individuals, is he? He's, He's saving for himself a people, plural, a people to the praise of his glory. Well, next we are, just like Paul, to to work hard and lead quiet lives, not just because that's what we should do, but like Paul, we should work hard because we have an earnest desire not to be a burden to anyone, um, to our fellow believers in the church and to others that we have the privilege to, to serve and minister to. We are to live devoutly and righteously and blamelessly, just like the Apostle Paul, so that if we were ever to take the witness stand, there would be no charges of impropriety that could be brought against us. We are to exhort and to encourage and to implore one another to live godly lives, just as a loving father would do with his own children. And we are to live in a manner that is worthy of the God who calls us into his kingdom, knowing that we all will someday share in his glory. So let's pray and ask that the Lord will help us do just that. Father, we're so thankful for the testimony of the Apostle Paul, for the life that he lived and the way he ministered to the people in Thessalonica. We are amazed at the remarkable transformation that took place in his life as by your spirit um, we see this man transform from a a a cruel and wicked murderer into um, a kind and gentle and compassionate man that loved you loved your word and loved your people i pray that we too would be like paul that we would be gentle um, but that we would contend for the gospel that we would get the gospel right that we would understand it fully, um, and all of its implications. I pray that we would exhort and encourage and admonish one another, um, and that we would charge one another to live lives that are worthy of the calling to which you have called us, and that will all be for your honor and for your glory. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.